You're listening to Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Washington, D.C. office. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of NCBA's Beltway Beef. I'm Hunter Ehrman, and today I'm joined by Sigrid Johannes, Associate Director of the Public Lands Council and NCBA Natural Resources, to break down the Fish and Wildlife Service's recent listing of the lesser prairie chicken under the Endangered Species Act. Sigrid, why does this action pose a problem for cattle producers? Thanks for having me, Hunter. So this listing is problematic for a few reasons. On the on the sort of top level, uh, anytime we see a species listed under ESA and sort of taken under federal control rather than state or local control, that's something that, that concerns us and raises a few alarms, right? Because what's happening there is uh, Fish and Wildlife is coming in and saying that by moving this bird to the endangered species list, they want to do a top-down approach to the conservation actions that will ultimately hopefully bolster numbers of the bird and also bolster acres of, of their habitat. So that's an approach that, you know, has not had a great track record of success, frankly, over the decades that the ESA has been in place. Very, very, very few species that are ever listed ever make it off that list. Uh, and by contrast, when you look at, you know, state managed wildlife populations or even, you know, drilling down further to the local level, uh, there are really successful track records of conservation once you get down to that local level. And that's been the case with this bird in particular. We've seen over the past decades, you know, the lesser prairie chicken and other prairie grouse species that are like it, uh, ranchers have really led the way on conserving the habitat where this bird tends to thrive. And we've seen studies that confirm the bird is not running away from the acres where you have cattle out there, or even frankly, a little bit further west where you have sheep out there as well. This is a bird that doesn't mind coexisting with livestock. It loves the kind of pasture and rangeland that our members at NCBA are tend to conserve and tend to you know cultivate and manage for. And uh, we think that that work should be allowed to continue. You know, there's a limit to how much you're going to accomplish when you take the people who know the most out of the driver's seat and put the federal government there instead. So, Sigrid, can you talk a little bit more about those voluntary conservation efforts and how ranchers have helped to protect habitat for the lesser prairie chicken? Absolutely. So the the habitat that this bird tends to live in, and when I say live, I mean, you know, nest, uh, mate, uh, raise, you know, young offspring, all of those different life cycles that are important to the survivability of the species. All of those life cycle phases tend to take place in heterogeneous uh, acres. And what that means is a really great level of biodiversity, a really wide range of plant species, different plant heights, different types of grasses forbs and shrubs, uh, a variety of ground cover, really just that sort of, you know, scrubby for lack of a better term, but very, very sort of mixed up scrubby, high variety rangeland. And that's where our folks who are producing cattle in, in the West and in the Southern Great Plains, that's where they graze. That's the kind of landscape that they, you know, tend to tend to like as well. Um, so that's where you tend to find this bird. Where you don't find it is cropland because it's very homogenous. It's got the exact same plant profile, the exact same plant height, uh, you know, all across it, uh, and other sort of similar grasslands a little bit further north, uh, up in the you know northern Great Plains, where you see a little bit more uniform grass height as well. That's where this bird tends to not be. And the other big factor that impacts their habitat is is man-made structures. They don't tend to shy away from fences, sort of low-lying horizontal. Uh, you know, construction that doesn't seem to bother them very much. What really will throw off their life cycle and throw off some of these, you know, crucial activities for them 
is these very tall vertical uh, man-made structures. So things like power lines, like very something very tall like that, that's something that's going to sort of throw the lesser prairie chicken off its game, so to speak. So where we where we tend to see this bird thriving is in fact the very same acres where you tend to see cattle ranching taking place. And we don't view that as a problem because again, there's there's no indication, there's no science to support the conclusion that those two activities can't take place, you know, simultaneously. They can't coexist. Quite the opposite. We have many folks who have for many years been conserving their these acres, conserving their habitat, protecting it from development, protecting it from some of those other industries, you know, that that frankly have a little bit of a bigger impact on this bird than cattle do. Uh, and we've seen them be able to thrive out there. So when we talk about ranchers conserving habitat, it's really a sort of whole whole acre, whole landscape approach. It's a mix of minimizing other development on the land. We talk all the time about the value that ranchers bring in keeping these acres open and green and undeveloped. You know, it's, it's not a suburban parking lot. It's this beautiful prime habitat out there. Uh, and then it's also the fact that ranchers are you know, managing for a particular type of landscape that this bird tends to favor. A lot of our folks, particularly in the West, I work a lot with our our ranchers out on public lands in the West. We talk all the time about how ranchers are in the business of being, you know, grass managers, they're plant managers, they're managing for that forage that is beneficial for their cattle, but is also really beneficial for this bird. Sigrid, part of this proposed rule from the Fish and Wildlife Service opens the door to private, potentially activist groups having a say over producers grazing. Could you tell me a little bit more about that issue? Absolutely. And so that's the most important uh, sort of red flag for us in this whole listing beyond the premise that, you know, we would like to not see the bird listed, uh, you know, accepting that this is a final rule and Fish and Wildlife has decided to move forward with this. The biggest problem we have with the way they've written the rule is this 4D uh, carve out. So just to give a little refresh on what that means, uh, a 4D is something that Fish and Wildlife writes for a threatened population. And in this rule, they've split the lesser prairie chicken into two different distinct population segments or DPSs, a Southern DPS, which is found in sort of the northern portion of New Mexico and parts of the Texas Panhandle. Birds in that area, they are listing as endangered. So that's sort of, you know, just straightforward. If you experience incidental take, incidental lethality of the bird in the course of normal operations, you're going to be subject to the same, you know, liability and penalties as if you killed any other endangered species. In the threatened uh, portion, that's this northern DPS. So this is for the birds found in southeastern Colorado, in Kansas, Oklahoma, and sort of the northern portion of that Texas panhandle. So in that area, in that northern DPS, the service is listing the birds as threatened. And if it's threatened, they can do a 4D rule. Now, normally, this is something that cattle ranchers and sort of ag producers writ large like to see because 4D rules are intended to provide flexibility and legal protection for farmers, for ranchers, for other folks in industry who are out on the land, out in the range of a particular species, and through you know, no fault of their own in the daily operations of their business, they might experience some minimum level of incidental take of unintentional lethality towards this protected species that, frankly, they they should not be liable for or thrown in jail for. That's ridiculous. So that's why we like to see these 4D, 4D rules 
they provide that flexibility and they provide that protection. The problem with this is that the 4D rule for the lesser prairie chicken has really gone off the rails in terms of, of what it's intended to do. So the way that the, the service has written this is that the 4D protections will only extend to take or you know, killing of a bird, death of a bird, take associated with grazing practices that follow a grazing management plan developed by an agency approved third party. So that's a little bit of great Washington word salad, typical of, of a federal agency. But what does that actually mean? It means that if you have incidental take of a bird and you're not following a grazing management plan that's been signed off on by some third party, guess what? You're on the hook for that. You're on the hook for the same legal liabilities uh, that you know would exist if we didn't even have the 4D rule. So that's a pretty big problem for us and our producers. And when you look at what counts as a third party, Fish and Wildlife Service has been very, uh, very non-committal, I'll say, on what is actually going to count and who's going to count. And that always makes us nervous because that, you know, isn't, it's not very encouraging when they don't want to tell you who's going to count. It's probably going to be some groups and some organizations that we don't like very much because they don't want grazers out on the land. And so, you know, in the hours, literally hours after this rule published, we were on the phone with Fish and Wildlife and we said, well, what about NRCS, for example? There are plenty of folks, particularly in our Great Plains states there in Kansas and Oklahoma and, and whatnot, who have significant an overlap with USDA uh, NRCS and you know might have developed a grazing management plan in conjunction with that agency maybe they can present that to fish and wildlife and say hey here's my third party approved grazing plan it came out of NRCS am i good to go you know does this satisfy the requirements of the 4D rule and fish and wildlife was sort of waffling back and forth on that. They didn't want to say that it was going to count. They didn't say that they knew who they were going to have on the list. They said they envisioned this as true third parties. I mean, true, you know, non-governmental organizations and groups and nonprofits. And that's really concerning because on the one hand, you know, we have a lot of folks out there who have been grazing for 30, 40 50 years, they know the land like the back of their hand. And I would say they are probably the ones who make the most sense to be signing off on their own grazing plan. They've been doing it for years. You would think that uh, that, that expertise would satisfy the Fish and Wildlife Service. But if you're not going to let people follow their own grazing plans and you're going to require them to go to a third party, why not something like NRCS? Why not uh, you know, another portion of the federal government that specializes in conservation? I, it makes no sense. And it really makes me nervous because it looks looks as if, you know, whether they intended this or not, Fish and Wildlife is opening the door for all sorts of other groups to flood in and fill that niche of being third parties. You could have Center for Biological Diversity applying to be a third party grazing approver under this rule. You could have Defenders of Wildlife. You could have Western Watersheds. You could have all of these different groups that have made it very clear from the jump. They're, one of their main agendas is to get grazers off the land. And frankly, we think it's a little outrageous that Fish and Wildlife would set up a system that's going to enable some of these groups to to control the manner in which folks graze out there simply because of this one species listing. Secret, how would NCBA and the Public Lands Council like to see the Fish and Wildlife Service conduct these listings differently in the future? That's a great question, Hunter. I would say on the one hand, we would like to see Fish and Wildlife, uh, you know, really act with a huge degree of caution and restraint when it comes to listing species in the first place. This is supposed to be uh, you know, a last resort, if you will, uh, uh, no other option uh, to sort of, again, take that 
take that nuclear option and put the federal government in charge of something. We're seeing a lot of success when it comes to conservation of prairie chicken habitat at the local and state and most importantly, voluntary level. So as long as that's working, we would like to see that continue. But sort of moving beyond that, you know, again, we don't live in a perfect world. We live in reality and sometimes fish and wildlife is going to list species. Okay, when that happens, what we would like to see is really a lot more attention to what cattle ranchers themselves and other farmers and other folks who are out there, you know, working every day to conserve the land and feed this country. Uh, We would like to see a lot more weight placed on, you know, their expertise and their knowledge. Any rancher, I guarantee you, you know, and I've talked to dozens of our folks since this rule came out who have called up and had, you know, various pieces that jumped out to them and were concerning to them. And they're trying to get to the bottom of this and figure out what it's going to mean for their operation. You could put any single one of those men or women on the phone with Fish and Wildlife and they would have written a better 4D rule than than the folks who are sitting here in Washington. So that's pretty frustrating. And we would like to see Fish and Wildlife, you know, do a little bit more listening and a little bit more uh, feedback gathering before they put out a rule like this that really completely misses the mark on what a 4D is intended to do. It completely misses the mark on that flexibility. Not only does it not help, it actually hurts, again, by empowering some of those third-party groups that want to take grazing off of the land. Sigrid, can you remind some of our listeners, uh, what are some of the benefits of cattle grazing? Yeah, well, there are myriad benefits of cattle grazing. First and foremost, cattle grazing feeds people, okay? We need to feed this country. We need to feed a lot of folks around the globe. And cattle ranchers provide a product that that folks need and that is nutritious and and highly valuable from that perspective. Beyond that, there's this whole suite of ecosystem services that cattle ranchers provide on the land, right? And we talked a lot about it with the lesser prairie chicken. The action of grazing, the the way that cattle move through uh, an acre of forage and sort of the plants that they select, the hoof action that comes from a herd moving through, all of those things tend to encourage stronger root networks, So you have better soil, you have less soil erosion, you're losing less topsoil over time, uh, you're more resistant to things like drought uh, or conversely floods, things like that. You just have more stable soil and stable soil is storing more carbon. It's storing more life. It's storing more bacteria, more fungi. It's just a better overall ecosystem. So that impact on the soil and the root networks is huge. That impact on plant biodiversity is also huge. A more biodiverse landscape is one that's going to be more resistant to drought And particularly in the West, this is a huge concern for our folks. It's more resistant to fire. You want cattle out there. You want livestock out there clearing away those invasive fine fuels, the cheat grasses, the vetinata, those other plant species that just are tinderboxes for these catastrophic fires that we're seeing in the West. Cattle go out there and they clear them out. And what I think is lost on a lot of our folks further East, certainly sitting here at a desk in Washington, people don't realize how difficult it is to apply some other treatments at the scale that's really needed out in these Western states and these sort of Great Plains region states. You can't spray every acre in the West, uh, certainly not aerially and certainly not mechanically down on the ground. You can't uh, get out there and do mechanical thinning on every acre of forest, for example. All of these other solutions that sort of cut livestock out of the equation, you know, they have a place, certainly. They're part of the toolbox, but they're not scalable in the way that we need to really 
really tackle some of these problems like invasive species and, and fire risk across these vast, vast landscapes in the West. But you know who are very efficient at getting out there and doing this at the scale and the speed and the efficiency that's needed is cattle. So when you put cattle out on the landscape, you tend to see an improvement in the resiliency. You send, tend to see a reduction in the fire risk. And again, at the end of the day, you're producing a product that people need on acres that otherwise would be wasted. These are not acres that can support crop production. These are not acres that are being used for anything else. So you're out there conserving open spaces, improving the landscape, you're feeding people, you're conserving wildlife habitat by making sure that it's strong and healthy and not turned into a, you know, a parking lot or something. And uh, I would say that that's a pretty big bang for your buck when it comes to just this one species. Well, Seagrid, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Hunter. This has been another episode of Beltway Beef. Don't forget to check us out online at policy.ncba.org or catch the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from, including SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts.